Hello. Okay, one hello. So thank you for whoever said that. So good to see everyone. I'm so thankful that you are here. Uh, it is always good to be together. And uh, I've definitely been reflecting on that more and more uh, this morning as I see uh, just people continue to come back and connect. And it's just a, a great encouragement. And so, so thankful that you are here with us. So Johnny's going to put a word on the screen right now. And the word is obey. See, when we hear the word obey, maybe we have a couple different reactions. Is we may be thinking back to childhood, we may be thinking about our own parenting, we may be thinking about our kids, you may be thinking uh, just about the word obey when it comes to faith. I'm guessing that unless you're a parent or you're a child, that you've probably not recently used the word obey in one of your sentences. It's not like you go and you order coffee and then you get your coffee and you say, thank you for obeying me. Uh, you don't say that to the barista that's there or... You don't go to work and, and say, hey, I need that report by noon. Obey me, right? That, that doesn't happen. It doesn't have the right ring or connotation within society just in general is that we have a disconnect and it gets used only in special relationships. And those relationships, like I already mentioned, is, is often parent to child. That's the typical way or child of God to God. We think about obedience and we think about phrases that we use in our home uh, which the kids have heard is that uh, you need to obey what we just told you to do, or you are actively disobeying. Now, the reason we say these things is because we want to communicate clearly what our expectation is and, and to remind the kids to follow after that. And we as parents, we often get a mixture of obedience and disobedience. But the reason we ask these questions is out of the good we want for our children, out of the love that we have for them and also for their safety and well-being. And I would say that you as well as a parent, as a child, however the relationship may be, is that that same type of thing is a reality. As I tell my kids, I'm not just trying to control your life, is that it feels like that, uh, but that's not the intent. There's good in this. And so we obey God as well. We're called to obey God as well. Now, as parent to child, God to child of God, we can respond with obedience in really two different ways. Is one, we can respond in fear. We can respond in fear or we can respond in love. When we respond in fear, often what happens is that we put on an act. We masquerade, we parade around in obedience because we don't want bad things to happen to us. And this is with God and this is also with parents, is that I don't want punishment. So I will do whatever mom and dad says, I will do whatever God says, and so I'm going to put on the show, I'm going to act like I like it, I'm going to do it, maybe begrudgingly, and fear is the motivator here. Or the motivator can be love. And love has a radically different response because love is the investment in the relationship. When we obey God or we obey a parent is that we're investing in the relationship for the good of self and for the good of the whole. We when we respond in fear, is radically different than when we respond in love. So what is it for you in your relationship with God? Do you respond more often in fear or in love? What is it that motivates you to obey? When you hear God teach, say something, when you read the word, what is that and what are you trying to get out of that? And why is that? So as you think about that, I want you to think uh, about some words that we're going to look at in Romans chapter 12. And in Romans chapter 12, these are instructions really for the followers in Rome to live out. 
How are we living out faith? As we've been talking about being better together, it's not just about my salvation, my individual relationship with God. It's about the communal whole. It's about being better together as a church, as followers of Jesus. And so here in Romans, we have instruction this way of what we're to contribute and then also some attitudes we're supposed to have. So we're going to start in Romans 12, chapter 1. I'm sorry, Romans 12, verse 1. It says this, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, so this is all about perspective, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. So we see in here, we all have different roles and responsibilities. And it doesn't mean that you're not doing the other things. Like if your job is encouragement, it doesn't mean it negates all the other aspects of it. But it just means do what you're called to do in the body for it to be better together because you have especially a gift in that area. And then here's some motivation. Verse 9, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now there are so many different messages within this passage. There's so many different practical applications that we can take. And hopefully one or two stood out to you that, that you're saying, this is, this is part of my investment to be better together in community. And we've been encouraging the last number of weeks that we truly are better together than we are apart. So we've been talking about the centrality of the world and word and being focused on that, the centrality of prayer and being focused on that, the centrality of giving in this common good and focusing on that as well. And it is true, we are really better together, but community is hard. Community is really difficult. There's joy and there's also pain. 
See, we're better in community because in community we find healing and hope and encouragement. But also in community, we find misunderstanding and hurt and disagreement. See, these things happen because we're human, right? Anytime you put two human beings in a room with each other, there's difference. There's similarity, but there's difference. And we see scripturally we are better together, but it is difficult. And the reason being is that people are messy. You're messy. The person sitting next to you or around you or knows you best will agree with that. And just like I've said in every service, Joanna will agree that I am messy. I am messy, right? I'm messy. No, she's, yes, you can say it's true. Because we're human. We're messy. We have opinions and thoughts and feelings and, and we have different experiences. And then we come together as followers of Christ and we're surprised when it's hard. So how do we pursue community? How can we really say, yes, we are better together than we are apart in a time where not just the world outside these walls, but here too, we have differences of opinions and there's division and there's different ways of seeing the world. I mean, think of all the different things that swirls around us every day. Politics and conspiracy theories and marriage issues and abortion and racism and death penalty and COVID and mask wearing and the vaccine and high school sports in Michigan and social media. There's all sorts of different opinions. And so how do we come close to people with these different opinions, with these different views, and still say we're better together? I mean, it kind of seems like this utopian fantasy when we say, let's just come together. Let's come together in unity. But maybe there's something more than just looking at what's around us when it comes to following Jesus and being better together. So we've spent a lot of time in Acts 2. And so I want to just take a moment to pull something out of what we see in Acts 2 in this community that's there. Often this Acts 2 community, churches are like, we should just be like the early church. We should just do everything like the early church. They had it all together. It was all perfect, and, and it was great. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. And, and I'm going to show you why here in just a moment. In Acts 2, there's much we can learn from them. And that's the reason we've been circling around Acts 2 for the last number of weeks. But we cannot idolize or idealize what happened there. But they did do a number of things that caused them to rise above the noise and to pay attention to what's most important. So let's look at the Acts 2 community. Let's think about it for a moment. There's about 120 believers hanging out in Jerusalem. Okay, get in 120 people in your mind. Then one day, God says, hey, I'm going to give the Holy Spirit. And an amazing thing happens, which we're going to read about in just a moment. And then there's 3,000 more people who are added to this group of 120. So you've got 120 people trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus. And then now there's 3,000 new people there. So each of these first 120 who's trying to figure out how to follow Jesus now have 25 people to disciple, to pour into, to encourage. And let's read about this community. I want, I want you to hear a little bit more of the difference that they came against and they came with. So Acts 2, starting in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven 
and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire and separated, that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't these all who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that each of, them, each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judah, uh, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phryga, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some of them made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. So we have this passage where there's all these different people who are together. And you can read past this list very quickly. But I want you to think about who these people are and, and where they come from in today's geography. The people who gathered, who heard this, who witnessed this, who were part of the 3,000, were from modern-day Iran, Iraq, Israel, Turkey, Egypt, Italy, and Greece. Now, they all get along today, right? And so we somehow think that the church in Acts 2, that there was no issues about culture and beliefs and customs and food and expectations and, and on and on and on and on. But here, you've got people from all different places coming together. And you talk about a messy and complicated church. It's what we witness in Acts 2. Let's consider another group of people, another in Acts, not in Acts, Jesus' disciples. We just talked about Acts 2. Now, Jesus' disciples. Think of some of the people that made up Jesus' disciples. Peter, a fisherman. He always spoke his mind, and he acted on impulse. And you can even start to like picture these men up here, okay? And maybe you know someone that you could just picture them. Because I want you to have this, this picture of, of who Jesus hung around in community with. Then there was James and John, some more fishermen. So we got the fishermen together. But these two were nicknamed Sons of Thunder. And this wasn't intended to be a compliment, right? So this is probably something to do with their temperament. This is probably something to do with the way they communicated to one another. These Sons of Thunder. These were the two that when they weren't welcomed in a village, they looked at Jesus with all the seriousness in the world and they said, shall we call down fire from heaven to consume the village? Jesus is choosing to hang out with Peter, who speaks his mind, the sons of thunder. Let's throw Matthew in the mix, okay? Matthew was a tax collector. Tax collectors did not have friends besides other tax collectors. They were considered traitors. They were working for Rome. They were considered to be irredeemable, like they were just lost causes. All right, here we go. We got Matthew, who's not like hanging out with, tax, or with fishermen who are speaking their mind, who have strong opinions. Then we get Thomas, who's cautious, who's analytical, probably a little melancholy. Then we'll throw in Simon the Zealot. We don't know a lot about Simon, but we do know that the Zealots wanted to violently overthrow Rome. So we've got him in there with a tax collector who's working for Rome and some, some opinionated fishermen. And then we'll throw in Judas, who's greedy and selfish and manipulative, probably hangs back and watches for opportunity. And then we're throwing in some other guys. 
And this is who Jesus chose to hang around with. This is who Jesus decided, hey, I have a a message, and I'm going to use these guys. You can't tell me they always got along, and we see clearly in Scripture that in the Gospels, these men did not always get along. And there was many times where Jesus was just going like, when he'd teach something and they just didn't get it. But yet Jesus chose to live, to minister in community. These individuals propelled the community we see in Acts 2, which is radically diverse. And we, too, are part of the body of Christ, the church, who are diverse here, but diverse across the world as well. So how in the world can we really be better together? How can we be a community of contrast? Because what is tempting is it's tempting just to look like the world. It's tempting just to fall in, and we've talked about the last number of weeks. So I want to give us three ways that we can do this well, that we can, we can be a contrast community. We can add to this. So the first, actually, I'm going to give you all three. Uh, so this is how. This is what I'm going to suggest. First, we fully obey Jesus. Second, we give extraordinary grace to others. And then three, we worship with your entire life. So fully obey Jesus, give extraordinary grace to others, worship with your entire life. Sounds like an afternoon project, right? A little bit more than an afternoon project. But these are things that can call us to move in a different way. So let's start with the first one. Fully obey Jesus. We often like to obey Jesus, right? We'll take this part. Just obey Jesus. But this fully part, that's really hard. I think we get challenged in that. Is that I'm going to obey most of what Jesus says. 99%, maybe 95%, depending on the day and the situation. But Jesus said this, if we love him, we will keep his commands. I assume that he meant all of them. And we're to obey out of love, not fear. So we obey Jesus fully, not because we're afraid he's going to squash us, but rather out of love. We obey out of love. But again, this is easier said than done. It reminds me of a story in the Old Testament where the Lord speaks to Samuel And Samuel goes to Saul, King Saul, and he says, okay, this is how you're going to move against this army. This is the the military move that you're going to make. And I want you to go, and I want you to do it exactly this way that I'm telling you. So Saul's like, all right, cool. So he goes to battle, and he wins the battle. But what he does is he obeys God because he brings things back with him that he wasn't supposed to bring back. And so Samuel goes to King Saul, and he says, hey, God's really upset because you, you didn't fully obey him. You just obeyed him. And Saul's like, yeah, 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 I did what you said. I went and I won and this is what I did. And Samuel's like, no, 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 no. You, you obeyed, but you didn't fully obey. You did what God said, but you improvised in it. And this is what Samuel said to Saul. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? as much as in obeying the Lord. To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. And here on brought the fall of Saul. See, what Saul was doing was he was bringing some stuff back, and he said, I, I want to to sacrifice this to the Lord. I wanted to give this to the Lord. I wanted to show what we had done, the victory we had won. 
But often, offerings and sacrifices are about us. It was about Saul. Like, I'm making a sacrifice by reading my Bible, by praying. And I'm going to do it publicly so others can see. And God's like, no, 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 just obey me. I need you to fully obey me. And really, the reason we go to this burnt offering and sacrifice instead of obeying the Lord is because of arrogance. It's because I think my ways are better than God's ways. So what I do is that, again, I, I do 95% of what God calls me to do, but the other 5%, well, it's just not applicable in 2021, or I don't think that's really what the word meant, or whatever the justification is, is that I may obey, but I'm not going all the way. I mean, I may read in here and be like, oh, ooh, I don't, hmm, that was for people long ago. Oh, I don't really have to do that. I don't have to have that attitude. If, if God, God knows that this person is really, God, well, God knows this person. Of course this person should deserve this, right? I mean, we go through this and we, we find these justifications to obey God, but not fully obey God. And even with the fact of saying fully obey versus obey is just silly because it's either we're obeying or we're not. It's not this grace. So we can't pick and choose what we want to obey because obedience is a measure of the relationship we have with God and with kids, too, is obedience is a measure of the relationship that we have with them and they have with us. I mean, I don't want my kids to just obey me 95% of the way and be like, ah, that's close enough. No, fully obey because I want what's best for you. I know what's best for you. This is, this is going to help you now and in, later on in life. Just obey. You want to do it a different way. I get that. But But obey. We don't have the perspective as God does. Second thing is give extraordinary grace to others. Why? Well, because you need it and I need it just as much. We need this grace. Have you ever seen a group or a person or whatever it may be and you really admire them from a distance? Like, wow, they've really got it going on. Or, or maybe you've come to this church and, and you look and you're like, wow, they've, they've really got it together. And then you start to get a little bit closer and you're like, oh, this it's good. It's good. Yeah, I can think of work on this. A little bit closer. Ooh, all right, all right. I mean, it's the same thing as like proximity relationally, right? Is that if you were to get closer to me, you would see how much gray I have in my beard. You'd see the blemishes on my face. You'd see the wrinkles. You'd see the things going on because you'd be close. Or in a relationship, in a marriage. Like you get closer and closer to a person. You know them better and better and better. This is both for the good and the bad. But the closer we get to another person, the more we need to give extraordinary grace. The closer we get to a group that's around us, I mean, obviously if it's sinful, it's a different thing. But the more we get closer and closer into a group, or more we get involved in a church, is that like, we're really seeing people because they're people. Like, they're not all these saints who are around who say everything perfectly and do everything perfectly. And, and you know what? If I'm being honest, I'm not doing it either. So I need this extraordinary grace, and, and I need to give it. Romans 12.10 says this, Be devoted to one another in love, and honor one another above yourselves. It's this devotion, it's this centered reality, is that we're devoted to one another that we honor one another above ourselves. It's about the other person. We, we want people to honor, like, honor me. Pay attention to me. 
Like we, we may not say that, but we want that. But if we're honoring one another above ourselves, if everyone's doing that, there is enough honor to go around. There's enough devotion to go around. And so we give this extraordinary grace in life and in community and in obedience. And the third and final thing is that we worship with our entire life. So, so we fully obey God. We give this extraordinary grace to one another and that we worship with our entire life. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says this, in view of God's mercy. So again, the perspective. This is full obedience. This is grace. In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Now next week, John is going to talk about being a worship-centered community. But being a worship-centered community is exactly this. It's not just music. It's view of God's mercy to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. It's like, I'm here, God. Use me. I'm ready to fully obey you. I'm ready to give the grace to others that I need. Verse 2 says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so it's a process. It's this process of, of, of being transformed and being renewed. So, of course, when you walk into a group that's messy, I mean, every group's messy. Of course, when you walk into a group and you get closer, you're like, oh, all right, we're being renewed and transformed. We're being renewed and transformed. And that person that said that one thing, hopefully they're being renewed and transformed as well. That they're faithfully followed. That we continue to do this and we walk in this. See, obedience is about this renewal and this transformation again and again and again. Oswald Chambers wrote, I'm going to read a longer section of something that he wrote, talking about obedience and love and community and how we see God in community. Probably one of the most important realities of being together. He wrote this, The Lord does not give me rules, but he makes his standard very clear. If my relationship to him is that of love, I will do what he says without hesitation. If I hesitate, it is because I love someone that I have placed in competition with him, namely myself. Jesus Christ will not force me to obey him, but I must. And as soon as I obey him, I fulfill my spiritual destiny. My personal life may be crowded with small, petty happenings, altogether insignificant, but if I obey Jesus Christ in the seemingly random circumstances of life, they become pinholes through which I see the face of God. Then when I stand face to face with God, I will discover that through my obedience, thousands were blessed. When God's redemption brings a human soul to the point of obedience, it always produces. If I obey Jesus Christ, the redemption of God will flow through me to the lives of others. Because behind the deed of obedience is the reality of Almighty God. So why do I obey? Well, it's God flowing through me. Why do I obey? Because every time I do, it's a pinhole poking through a piece of paper that helps me better see God. And with all these little pinholes, I see God more and more fully until I see him face to face. Obedience is an opportunity, not an obligation. Obedience is an act of love, not a response to fear. Now Jesus, we know his disciples were quite the crew. 
And in John 17, Jesus prayed. And he prayed this last prayer before he went to the cross. And so he's pouring out his heart. He's praying for his disciples. He also prays for us as followers of Jesus. But before he does that, he does a simple action that I think speaks volumes to obedience and our response to obedience or our lack of response. In verse 1, it says this. It says, after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and he prayed. So his disciples were around him. All the attitude, arrogance, greed, conversations, all these different things. They were still work in progress. And Jesus could have looked at all of them to pray. Been like, oh, we need to pray about him. We need to pray about him. But what did he do? He looked up to his father. Because Jesus knew that obedience came not from having eyes on the world around him and all the division and disagreement and confusion and hardship and noise. It came from having eyes on the father. And so Jesus drew his strength by looking up. And so we too, in the midst of the reality, we look around and we see what's going on. But we too look up in obedience. For it's there as we keep our eyes on the Lord that we fully obey him, that it allows us to have the grace that we need for around us and allows us to lay our life down as an act of worship. Not keeping our eyes here, but keeping our eyes here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as Jesus looked up to you so long ago, before he went to the cross, we as well look up to you. God, personally, my prayers have often been consumed with the happenings of things around me, and I should pray for this. But God, it's not my wisdom, my strength, my ability. It's you. Lord, I pray today for each one of us, myself included, that we would more fully obey you, that we would trust in the things that you've said, we would trust in the leading of your spirit as we walk, and God, that we would look more and more like Jesus. Father, we pray, God, for salvation for for anyone that has not received Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, who's hearing these words now or later online. for the first step of obedience is salvation, is saying yes to you as Lord and Savior. And that begins with a simple yes, a simple prayer. Something like this from the heart. God, I say yes to you. Lord, I want to walk in obedience and and follow in your ways. God, I'm a sinner, and right now I confess my sins before you. And God, ask that you would just wash them away. You take them all away. And for it's Jesus' work on the cross that I find salvation. And so, Lord, today I ask and trust and know that you are my Savior. And that, God, I want to walk in obedience and grace and worship and follow after you as my Lord. And so I want to begin with this step by saying yes to you. And for those of us who have committed our lives to Christ, who follow after you. God, I thank you that you give us the opportunity to follow after you. Lord, you beckon us, you call us, but you don't demand it. You bring us with love. And so, Father, for any of us who have just stopped or just turned aside, Lord, once again, we recommit to you and we say yes to fully obeying what you set forth for us. We say yes to 
offering extraordinary grace to those around us. And we say yes to laying down our life in worship. So Lord, help us in this day, help us in this week, Lord, as we continue to follow after you. Lord, you're so good. We're so thankful that you have made a way, that you continue to make a way. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.